This morning we're looking at the promise of Emmanuel here in uh, Isaiah chapter 7. And as we look at Isaiah, we find there are several references to the coming Messiah. And so this morning, I want to show how we can learn from Ahaz, what we can learn from Ahaz in this chapter, and from the promise that God made. And so we want to begin by first looking at the background of this promise that is made. As you look here in Isaiah chapter 7 and verses 1 uh, through about verse 9, we have the background for this promise. And we find in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 here, the news of an invasion. In verses 1 and 2 here, the Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzzah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but he could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And as we find here that uh, this news of this invasion causes the people here in verse 2 to grow, to grow afraid. He says the, the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And we know what that is like when the wind blows so hard you start seeing trees move. That's one of the reasons why you see, especially at different places, you'll find different times throughout the year where, where the uh, local authorities will come through and trim tree branches and even trim down trees that are too high and too thin that are a hazard that they were to, to, to sway and then crack and break in half. When we were living in uh, South Carolina, that's exactly what happened to the uh, apartment we were living in while we were gone out to eat one evening. The, the storm came through and those straight line winds made the tree sway and one cracked in half and landed on top of our apartment there and caused all kinds of problems. But we find here their hearts are swaying back and forth. That is, they are uneasy. They are afraid. So Jerusalem is besieged here by Syria and by Israel. We also find this reference in 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 5, how they are besieged. And so the news of this happening makes them afraid. We find here in verse 2. But as we continue reading here in verses 3 and following, we find what I call a confrontation between belief and unbelief. If you look at verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 7, and as we have mentioned before, names are important because names oftentimes carry a very powerful meaning. If you look at verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the, end of the, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be, and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, uh, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remelah. Now, we notice here in verse 3, he mentions Isaiah to, take, to go out with him, him and his son, now, Isaiah's son, his name actually means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. Isn't it interesting his son's name means that, and that's who he's to take with him. Well, we know as we continue reading through Isaiah, we're going to find that a remnant is 
to be left, a remnant is to be spared, a faithful few of God who were loyal to him. And so we find here again, Isaiah is to go out and take with him his son with this very important meaning behind his name, is to go out to meet these individuals there in verse 4. And look what his message is in verse 4. Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. And notice how he refers to these enemies that they're looking at facing in verse 4. These two stubs of smoking firebrands. What eventually happens to a fire? It burns out. And what is left behind? Smoke. And this is a picture of them. Basically, the idea is that their their strength, their enemies who they're so worried about, he's saying they're not going, they're nothing to fear. They're not going to be around very long. They're pictured as smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria. And so, again, they are not to be fearful of these people, he says in verse 4. He says, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. Now, we look here, uh, as we continue reading here in verses 5 and 6, we find that Rezin and Pekah had purposed evil against Ahaz, and they intended to provoke Judah to anger and to make a breach in the city perhaps even remove Ahaz and set up their own king. We look at verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah chapter 7, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramallah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Now what is important is not so much what they say in verse 5, but what God says in verse 7. It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. I mean, no matter what they say, what evil plot they have. I mean, notice in verse 6, this is really an overthrow of those people that they're plotting. Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves. That is, we're going to make a gap in the wall. We're going to break through. We're going to overcome it. And we're going to set our own king in place. There in verse 6. But notice how worried the Lord is concerning it. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. That's why we find in previous verses the Lord spoke to him and tell him not to be afraid. Be quiet. Don't be afraid. Don't be faint-hearted. They're not going to last long. And as they are plotting this against, against uh, uh, Judah there in verse 5 and 6, the Lord's reply in verse 7 is, it's not going to happen. It's not going to take place. Jehovah will not allow this to happen. As we look at verses 8 and 9, as we get up more towards our promise and our main focus for our lesson this morning, looking at verses 8 and 9, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remelah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be. If you will not, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Now we'll get to the latter part of verse nine in a second, but verse eight. We find here that Syria is all that Damascus will rule. The head of Damascus is resin. That is, his headship shall not extend beyond Syria. Ephraim will be broken up and destroyed as a nation. As we find there in verse uh, verse 8, right? 
Within 65 years, Ephraim was going to be broken up. That's not very long. And he says in verse 9, the head, of, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramallah's son. So he's talking about all this going to take place, how limited they're going to be, how Ephraim is going to be broken up. But then in verse 9, notice what he says here. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. He's talking to Ahaz. If you don't believe the words of God concerning this, he says you're not going to be established, you're not going to allow, be allowed to continue to exist. And we look there in verse 9, we think about all that God has already said in these first eight verses. How he tells them not to be afraid. These their enemies, they're, they're like a smoking fire that's going to go out. They're not going to last much longer. Ephraim's going to be broken up. Those who plot to come in and overthrow you, he says, that will not come to pass. And then in verse 9, he says, you must believe his word. You must believe his word. Think about that phrase and how important it is for us still today. When he says that phrase, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. How can we apply that to us today? If we do not believe God's word... Will we ever go to heaven? If we do not believe God's word and follow it, that's what it means to believe. It means we don't just accept it. It means we actually act upon it and believe it. Our belief moves us to act upon what we know and what we understand. And here in verse 9, he's telling him, If you do not believe, surely you shall not be established. Now notice verse 10. Verse 10 and following to me is a very unique section of Scripture, not just because of the, the, the foretelling of, as we know, Christ coming in the future, but the offer that God makes to Ahaz is very unique. If you continue reading here, we'll find what I call here this section, the sign and the promise in verses 10 through 17. Looking at verse 10, we find where Ahaz reject, rejected God's offer of a sign. Now we know numerous times in scriptures, especially in the New Testament in reference to Christ, that he doesn't offer up signs when people ask him for a sign, do they? Does he? He doesn't say, oh, when they come to him saying, give us a sign, and he told, he told one group, you remember, the only sign you'll have is that similar to that of Jonah, right? Referencing his death, burial, and resurrection. But here looking at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 10, Notice what the Lord says. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask for a sign, Ahaz. Ask for a way for me to show you that my words are true, that there is going to come to pass. You know, this isn't any different, or much different, I should say, perhaps, than we find in the New Testament when the apostles, when they preach and teach. Remember, they confirmed their word from God. How? By the accompanying signs. Hear God saying, this is what's going to happen. If you don't believe me, ask for a sign. I'll show it to you. And you look here in verse 10. Look what he says. Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Now notice, he doesn't really hold anything back in verse 10, does he? He said, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ask anything. It's almost as if he's daring him to ask for a sign because God is more than capable of giving one, isn't he? Now Ahaz's response in verse 12 is not one of humbleness. It's one of arrogance. 
He has said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. The Lord is literally asking you to ask for a sign. It's an attempt to remove all doubt from Ahaz's mind, isn't it? You ever been talking to someone about Bible things? And they say, well, I don't believe that's what the Bible says. Or something to that effect. And maybe you open up your Bibles or you pull out your smartphone and say, well, it says it right here. No, I don't want to see it. That's a lot of what Ahaz is doing, isn't he? No, I won't test the Lord that way. The Lord is telling you, test me. Ask for a sign, verse 10 and 11. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now we know, as we find throughout Scripture, that God can give an incredible sign, can't He? We know that after the flood, God gave Noah a sign with a rainbow, Right? Representing how he'd never again destroy the earth by water. That's what it meant, regardless of what others today wanted to apply it to. That's what it's always meant. A sign given after a great destruction, that's a sign they picked for their movement. Not the best sign you could pick, but that's what they did. It was meant to, to it was implied by God, it was a sign given by God that he would never again destroy all the earth by water. It wasn't he never again would destroy people for their sin. But he would never do it in a way which he had just done. We also know we find numerous signs throughout the Bible at other times as well, right? In fact, at Christ's birth, what was in the sky which the wise men were to follow? A star that would rest, come to stop over where Christ was born? And the list goes on and on, right? You remember on, on Mount Carmel with the prophet of God and all those 300 prophets of Baal, and they were asking for a sign from their God to come and show they, that he was the one true God and to burn up all those things that they had there. They altered in that sacrifice, right? That was, his, that was their challenge. The one's God who responds by fire, that's the one true God. Well, no one responded that day but the one true God. And it was when the prophet of God prayed once and God gave one incredible sign, didn't he? And we find here in verses 10 and 11, the Lord is speaking to Ahaz and he tells him word for word, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Ask anything. Ahaz did not want to do that. Now, we could probably speculate why he didn't do that. But I think one of those reasons why, at least in part, is that he didn't want to confirm God's word. He didn't believe God's word. That's what we find previously as we saw there back looking into verse 9 when the Lord says, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And the next thing he says is, ask for a sign, I'll prove it to you that my words are true. That I am a, a, the God of his word. But Ahaz will not do that. And as a result, looking at verse 13, then he said, Hear now, O house of David. It is, a small thing for you to, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? This is Isaiah speaking. Say it's one thing to, 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 to weary, to, to get on the nerves and to test men, flesh, mankind. He's saying, but he's, look, look what else he says. But will you weary, you might say test my God also? How are they doing that? By not obeying him. And like Ahaz, not asking, not saying, okay, give me a sign. They were testing God. 
by their disobedience and by their refusal to follow His Word and by their refusal to, to believe His Word as well. What's interesting, the very next thing we find is we find verses, again, 10 and 11 and 12. God says, ask for a sign. Ahaz says, I'm not going to do it. Isaiah says, why are you going to weary God? And in verse 14, we find the promise is given. And what does the Lord say? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God didn't wait for Ahaz to say, okay, give me one. The Lord says, okay, I'm going to give you one anyway. That this is a sign that I am one who, is, who keeps his word, right? He says, The Lord, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she sh and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word in Hebrew, and I don't know how you pronounce it, is uh, Alamah. That's how I'm going to butcher it today. And it occurs six times in addition to this verse. In each instance, it refers to an unmarried, chaste maiden. In other words, a virgin. All six times listed there on the screen. Genesis 24, 16, Exodus 2, verse 8, Psalm 68, 25, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3, from 6, verse 8, and Proverbs 30, verse 19. Each instance refers to an unmarried, chaste maiden. In other words, a virgin, not a young maiden, as some translations would have that. <clears throat> but a virgin. Again, what is that doing? Showing the fulfillment of God's words. We just saw there in verse 14. That he will, a sign will be the virgin shall give, uh, shall conceive and bear a son. Why is that important? Because virgins should not be able to do that. A miraculous entrance in the world, a divine being, Christ, the Son of God. We know the, the word Emmanuel literally means God is with us. Looking at verse 14, uh, she, she shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Again, a further indication the Son will be a special divine being. Uh, two more times, Isaiah uses this name in chapter 8, verses 5, 5 through 8, and chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And Isaiah treats... Uh, Emmanuel as one who is who, as uh, as if he's already on the earth as he refers to when he calls out there in chapter 8 verses 5 through 8 and chapter 8 verses 9 and 10 uh, he, he calls out in such a way it's as if Emmanuel is already there showing his belief in God's word we also find the government of God's kingdom will rest on his shoulders it is on Emmanuel's shoulders Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 we also know that Christ will come, will be the one who is a branch of Jesse, thus a descendant of David, and on him the spirit of Jehovah will rest. Isaiah introduces him as God with us, bringing someone to the world who is both God and man, thus a special entrance, a divine, a miraculous entrance, being born of a virgin, and all these things we find in more in, the gospel, in Matthew and Luke's account of Christ's birth as well. Looking at verse 15 here, he says, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that, that you shall dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Uh, he will grow up in a humble circumstances, and his diet will consist of curds and honey, food that was 
available during, typically during, many believe during times of scarcity where there wasn't much. Uh, verse 16, for, for before the child shall know to refuse the good and or refuse the evil and choose the good. And you notice there that phrase, before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. That's the reference to the time period in a person's life. When a child begins, grows, as they grow, they become to what we call, commonly called the age of accountability. Are they able to discern more clearly and more easily what is right and what is wrong? Choose to refuse the evil and choose the good. So referencing a time period, a time where the child is growing older. So before the child reaches that age, or before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you shall dread will be forsaken by her kings. So before the birth of the child, the land of Israel concerning which Ahaz was upset will be abandoned by both of her kings. And so before <coughs> this would take place, the land would be abandoned by both of her kings. Now in chapter in the latter part of chapter seven, uh, chapter seven, which we're not going to look at today, uh, but we can summarize it by saying the remainder of this chapter is a description of the devastation of the land by the Assyrians, which Jehovah will bring upon Ahaz. Why? Because Ahaz wouldn't even ask God for a sign. He didn't seem to believe God or take him at his word. And so what would happen? Destruction, devastation was going to come. Now what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning is applying this to us today. You think about what Ahaz did going back to Isaiah chapter 7. We must remember that the rebellious and stubborn are those who disobey God. When Ahaz refused to ask for that sign there in verses 10 through 13, he was being rebellious. He was being stubborn. And I'm sure we all know, myself included, we can all can be, if we're not careful sometimes, rebellious against what we want to be the truth, or we can be stubborn against God. Because human beings were not perfect. But there's always a price for behaving in such ways. Ahaz said no to God, and such a reaction merits punishment. He wanted no evidence of God's word being true. He wanted no sign from God whatsoever. But we also know in verse 14 that God gave that sign regardless of what Ahaz wanted. So the rebellious and stubborn are disobedient to God. How do we solve that problem? If we are rebellious to God, we are stubborn, and we'll not, allow our, we'll not uh, be humble enough to follow after God in His Word, to believe God in His Word, how do we correct that? We must be those who are willing to repent, to return to Him, as we'll talk about also this evening as we look at Zechariah. Another lesson we think about as we look at Isaiah chapter 7, not only that the rebellious and stubborn disobey God, but God's promise came to be. We know this from fulfillment of his prophecies from the gospel accounts. In fact, from the time, really from the time we start reading Matthew chapter 1, for example, moving forward, we begin to find fulfillment of God's prophecy. From the time from where Christ was born, when Christ was born, the manner in which the, the events transpired around him, where he was raised, he fulfilled prophecy and prophecy and prophecy before he ever became, before he ever began his actual earthly ministry. 
Isaiah chapter 53, we have a reference to that where it talks about how he would come, he, he would come out as a root at a dry ground, which is figurative of the hardship he had faced early on in life. We know that because where did his parents, his earthly parents, have to flee? Why did they have to flee? Because Herod wanted to kill him. And man so determined to kill the child that he issued a decree that every child in the age of two, or male child in the age of two, would be put to death. So they fled. And thus he was raised, as we know the Bible says, he would be called a Nazarene because of where he would be raised. God keeps his promises and fulfills the prophecies concerning, concerning all things that he makes. Christ coming as God said he would, living as God said he would, is the fulfillment of God's word, a fulfillment of the sign given despite, for example, stubborn Ahaz. You know, Herod wanted Christ dead. Did that stop God carrying out his plan? No. Others, during the, during the life of Christ, wanted him dead. Did that stop God's plan? No. When we say God's plan, as I'm referencing it today, I'm meaning God's plan for, for Christ on the earth and things in which he would fulfill and accomplish. Sometimes we misapply the idea of a plan, but that was God's plan for Christ, to come to the earth, to fulfill his will, fulfill those prophecies, obey his will by dying a sacrificial death on the cross, going to the tomb for three days and then rising again and being seen by numerous people before sending back into heaven for the purpose of salvation for mankind. That was and continues to be God's plan for us today to believe in Christ as the Son of God, and based upon that belief, we act upon it. We don't just say we believe, but we put it into action by repenting of our sins, confessing Christ, being immersed in baptism, and then remaining faithful to God. We put those things into action. <clears throat> we can learn from Ahaz not to be stubborn and to listen to God. You think Ahaz had the idea that God couldn't possibly give a sign? I don't think Ahaz had any doubt that God could give a sign. But Ahaz was stubborn. Ahaz was rebellious. Ahaz did not want to listen. He didn't want to see the truth laid out before him. But interestingly enough, as we saw in verse 14, God laid it out before him anyway. Unfortunately, Ahaz has to pay the price for his stubbornness. Well, we, want, we don't want to follow this example of Ahaz. Instead, we want to be like Isaiah who listened to God and was faithful to him. Isaiah was a messenger of God. He was a prophet for God, which means he spoke the words that God gave him to speak. And he sometimes endured a lot of persecution for it. But he still spoke those words. You know, Ahaz was a man who was afraid. You know, sometimes when we're afraid, we do things that don't make a whole lot of sense. And what Ahaz did, or refused to do, didn't make a whole lot of sense. God requests for him and tells him, ask for a sign, I'll give it to you. Ahaz said, no, I won't test you that way. God didn't view it as a test, did he? 
Instead, it was God's way of saying, I'm going to confirm my word by this sign. Just ask for one. You know, sometimes today when we know what the truth is, we don't want to see it before us. We think about how many times we're looking at the Bible, maybe through our own Bible study at home. Maybe it's through a Bible class or a sermon or gospel meeting, whatever the case may be. We start seeing the truth being laid out before us, and maybe it cuts a little too close to home. We don't like it. When Ahaz said, I will not test God, the truth of what God was going to do cut a little too close to home. We don't want to be like that. We want to be those who, like we find in Acts chapter 2, who even though they were cut to the heart, they still asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? They didn't say, hey, let's get out of here. They were like Ahaz and saying, we've heard enough. Not one more word. They were like those during the time, during the occasion of Stephen, who when, they, when their heart was cut, they stoned him for it. Instead, they asked a question there in verse 38. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 37, rather. Verse 38, and Peter responds, doesn't he? He tells them what they must do, which is the same thing we must do today. Reply with humble obedience to God. Based upon what we have heard, we come to believe that Christ is the Son of God. And because we believe in Christ as the Son of God, we are those willing to repent of our sins as we're willing to turn away from that sinful way of living and turn to God. Because we're willing to repent, we're not afraid to confess that Christ is the Son of God. If someone asks you today, is Christ the Son of God? Are you willing to say, yes, he is, absolutely. Are we afraid to reply? We want to be those who confess without hesitation, Christ is the Son of God. And because we make that confession, we're not afraid to do so. We are then immersed in baptism, Acts 2, verse 38, so that our sins can be washed away and we are added to the body of Christ. You know, Galatians 3, 26 and 27 references the same thing. Oftentimes you hear just verse 26 about faith. But verse 27 also talks about faith. And he tells us all those who were, who, were, who were baptized are added to the body of Christ, right? Which is a reference to, as the Bible tells us, the church. As Paul tells us, the body of Christ, which is the church. Which Christ purchased with his own blood, as he also tells us there in the book of Acts. And as Peter tells us in Acts 2, verse 30, how to be entered to the body of Christ through obedience to God's commands. We think about Ahaz, he wasn't obedient, and he suffered for it. But Isaiah was obedient, and he will be blessed for it. So let's be like Isaiah and be those who are obedient to God's word. This morning, as you think about these things, if you are a Christian, the Bible tells us not only what we must, not only what the non-Christian should do, but also what the Christian should do. That as we confess our sins to God, we have others pray in our behalf. The Bible tells us there in 1 John 1 and verse 9, that He is faithful and just, forgives of our sins, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven, except the one of willful rebellion against God. Those who refuse to obey God, friends, that can't be forgiven. How can you forgive those who live in rebellion? You can't until they come out of it. 
This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you in any way. We're glad to assist you as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. 